2: Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Randolph Avenue in Maida Vale, W9. Two streets south of the arrest of Edward Welstrom Lewis, a hundred feet east of the frozen torso of Hannah Brown, and two roads west of the unsolved murder by a killer who claimed to be the real Ripper coming soon to Murder Mile. Nestled to the side of little Venice, Randolph Avenue is a quiet, discreet and impressively clean road lined with an odd mix of building styles, reflecting its ever-changing fortune over the centuries. Not too long ago, it was full of rundown council tenements, but today, it's mostly full of celebrities. But aside from featuring in the comedy A Fish Called Wanda, where Otto, played by Kevin Kline, sideswipes a car and shouts the immortal line, Asshole! You'll have no reason to know this street. At 7 Randolph Avenue, currently sits a five-story townhouse worth six million pounds and although the loft and the white Doric columns around the door are recent additions, it looks as it did in the 1960s. Back in 1964, the ground-floor flat was the home of 77-year-old Samuel Bragg, a war veteran who suffered with dementia and lived in squalor. Thankfully, living in a house full of caring neighbours When he needed help, they were always there, right up to the day that he passed away in his bed. It's a sad story which happens every day in every town. Only Samuel's seemingly peaceful death would lead to his killer's arrest. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is is Murder Mile, Episode 169, Samuel Bragg, The Miser's Demise. Befitting a man who lived by himself, little is known of Samuel's life. Born in 1887, Samuel Bragg was the youngest of four to Henry and Eliza Bragg of Union Street in Lambeth, South London. A working-class family, with his mum a housewife and his dad a sawdust dealer. Age 14, he left school, becoming a building site labourer until he enlisted to fight for king and country in the First World War. And that is all that was recorded about the life of Samuel Bragg. It's as if his past had never existed and his present was coming to a close. In March 1955, age 67, Samuel Bragg had moved into the small front room on the ground floor of 7 Randolph Avenue in Maida Vale. A council-run lodging with Mr Rosen, a 60-year-old bachelor, living on the first floor, Mrs De Troc, a 75-year-old widow on the second floor, and on the third, the Cotter family, comprising of Mother Kathleen, Father Timothy, and three children, Jean, Anthony and Timothy Jr. Concerned for his well-being, the tenants always kept tabs on old Samuel, as it was clear that he had no one. With no wife, no kids, no friends nor siblings to visit him, Samuel was very much a loner. The sadness was that he had not always been this way. As a little guy of just five foot and three inches high, with a fondness for felt hats and sporting an elegant moustache. He was clearly once a bit of a dandy. But with no one to care for, and no one to love him, Samuel had become a shadow of his former self. Isolated, lonely, unloved. Through his twilight years, this dapper gent had morphed into a ragged sack of bones. Infected with bedsores, his eyes sunken and his skin unwashed and stinking. With his days spent alone in his squalid room, wearing soiled pants and muttering to himself in a rambling mumble. As a vulnerable man with advance in dementia, The Welfare Service had tried to get him a cleaner and a carer over the years and to coax him to move into a nursing home. But he had always refused any help. Samuel lived the life of a miser, saving every penny, spending nothing and living in abject squalor. Set to the side of the front door, His single room, being just 15 feet wide, consisted of a bed, a chair, two chests of drawers, and a small hob for cooking. With just one window, which was never open, the stale stench of this depressing hovel remained in semi-darkness, as he was too tight-fisted to switch on the bare bulb above his head. Being too mean to buy a rug, his calloused feet crept on the icy-cold floorboards, and unwilling to waste money and coal, the soiled sheets of his bed was his only warmth. It was a room of utter sadness. There was no colour, no music, and no joy. In no part of this dingy filth lay family photos, love letters or fond memories of his past, as all it contained was just the basics. And although malnutrition had made him weak, his spendthrift ways had made him live on a diet of sardines and potatoes, the cheapest foods he could buy, as every day his mental and physical health would decline. Samuel had no one to love him. But there was one person who cared. On the third floor of 7 Randolph Avenue lived 40-year-old Kathleen Cotter, a busy mother of four who earned an honest crust as an office cleaner as her husband's wage as a labourer wasn't enough. The Cotters had lived there for 12 years, and they had known Samuel since the day he had arrived. Initially, he was liked, but as his illness progressed, and the peculiarities of his dementia surfaced, some of the tenants grew distant. When they were little, Kathleen's youngest boys, Timothy and Anthony, often popped down to see old Samuel. He was fun, he was kind, and although tight-fisted, he always had a few pennies to spare so the kids could buy sweets. In the later years, although the promise of coins would prove a powerful lure, Tim and Tony stopped visiting, as in their words, the room stank. As a mother with a big heart and lots of patience, Kathleen did what she could for Samuel. She made him hearty meals, she darned his tatty clothes, and she even washed his bedsheets, as he often stayed in bed for days at a time. So rancid were his bedsheets, that although she ball-washed them separately as to eviscerate the lice, she would have loved to have burned them, only she knew he wouldn't buy more. In 1962, Kathleen was so worried about Samuel that she called the welfare officer. He was taken to St. Mary's Hospital and having remained there for five months, when he returned home, he looked well. But within weeks... Being back in the squalid stench of his own festering filth, Samuel began to decline. He got thin, pale, even more confused, and now, rejecting any help, he just wanted to be left alone. On the odd occasion that he ventured outside, He could often be seen wandering the streets in a pair of soiled underpants, mumbling to himself, unable to recall who he was or where he was going. Inside, his conversation was limited to just yes or no answers, and his hygiene was non-existent. He rarely bathed, his clothes smelled bad, and he would urinate into a metal bucket, which he kept beside his bed. With a communal toilet on the first floor, waking every day at 5.30am, Samuel would ascend the stairs, nab Mr. Rosen's newspaper, and spend the next 20 minutes straining all manner of unpleasantness from his upset bowels. And when his symphony of rectal explosions was over, with shaky hands, he would empty his bucket, often missing the bowl and slopping his fetid waist over the seat and the floor. It wasn't malicious, and she knew it, so without any complaint, his mess was cleaned up by Kathleen. As his illness got worse, Samuel's paranoia turned to the only thing he had in his life, his money. Samuel was a miser. He wasn't mean. He was just terrified of being robbed and left with nothing. Everyone knew that Samuel had money, as on the days when he couldn't pick up his pension, Kathleen would collect it for him being held in a tin box, in the third drawer down in his chest of drawers. The tin was always fastened, the drawer was kept locked, and the key was fixed to a chain on his belt. But as a frail old man, for any passing thief, he was an easy target. In January 1964, seven months before his death, Samuel had £26 stolen from his tin. With the front door left open and being too mean to fix the lock to his room, having left his trousers on the bed, the keys were used and within seconds the money was stolen. With the thief apprehended by Mrs. Cotter, as Samuel didn't want to report it to the police, The criminal agreed to pay back the full amount at a rate of 10 shillings a week. And that's what made the flats at 7 Randolph Avenue such a nice place to live. As the tenants always looked out for one another. Tuesday, the 14th of July 1964, was the last day that Samuel was seen alive. For the last three weeks, he had been bedbound. His breathing was laboured, and his body was weak and pale. It took Kathleen a little off guard to see him upright and alert as she knelt scrubbing the steps her mind distracted by a set of keys to the office she cleaned, which had gone missing the day before. But there he was. Alongside Mrs. De Troc, Kathleen asked, Mr. Bragg, you're feeling okay? Standing in the doorway of his unlit room, dressed in a stained pair of pyjamas, he croaked, No, I'm not his face all long and drawn. You really ought to see a doctor, Mrs. de begged. But just wanting to be left alone, the old man muttered, The doctors can do nothing for me. And with that, he returned to his bed. The next day, Kathleen gave her son Timothy One pound to buy some bread and milk. Being a typical 14-year-old boy, his teenage years had made him a little selfish. So having taken three shillings of her change, roughly one pound a day, he had spent it on pinball machines at the Phoenix Club, a youth club in West Hampstead. It had been fun. But knowing how hard she worked, and how disappointed she'd be, At 10.30pm, as he came in, I heard old Samuel moaning. I didn't pay attention, as he was always like that. Besides, the room smelled of whey. And worried about how he was going to apologise to his mum, Timothy passed Samuel's room, ascended the stairs, and returned to the family flat on the third floor. Friday the 17th of July, two days later, Kathleen had grown worried. Having entered the communal toilet at 7.10am, she prepared herself to reel from the toxic horror of the old man's ablutions, only it was as clean as she had left it the day before. Which was odd, as Samuel was a man of routine. Even when he was ill. Kathleen would state I went down to his door. It was as it was. It was wet shut with a piece of paper. I listened outside and heard nothing. I pushed it and went in. The bed was behind the door. All I could see of him was an arm over the top of the sheet outside the covers. His head was turned towards the wall and there was a pillow over the side of his face. I lifted it up and saw he was dead. PC Horace Sims arrived at 8am, followed by the police surgeon Dr. Samuel Sanders, who declared the life of 77-year-old Samuel Bragg extinct. With no signs of forced entry and nothing obviously stolen, robbery was ruled out. The room was messy, but no more than usual. And with his skin mottled with a mix of old and new bruises, this wasn't seen as suspicious, as the elderly often bruise a lot easier than the young. with no signs of struggle or assault. The most likely cause of death was the accidental suffocation, as his pillow had blocked his airways as he slept. His body was removed by J.H. Kenyon, an undertaker, and taken to St. Pancras Mortuary, where Dr. Molesworth Johnson confirmed death by accidental smothering. with no loved ones, no close family, and no relatives left to mourn him. The body of Samuel Bragg was held at Sampagra's mortuary until someone either claimed him or paid for his funeral. And with that, the inquest was closed. It was nothing extraordinary as being something which happens on most streets, in most towns, on most days. The death of Samuel Breck was just another sad demise of an old lonely miser. The tenants at 7 Randolph Avenue went back to their regular lives. The council had the room fumigated. His few possessions were destroyed and a new lodger moved into the ground-floor flat. Kathleen never found her missing keys. Timothy paid back the three shillings he had taken, and the toilet remained mercifully clean in the preceding weeks, although a sadness still hung over the house. As often happens, Some of the tenants spoke of how weird Samuel's death was. Of how the messiness of his room wasn't quite right. Of how he had bruised himself, only he hadn't left his bed. And even Kathleen would inform the police, I think old Samuel's been done in. But with no evidence of foul play. The police knew, as often happens, that people often clutch at straws when they're struggling with grief. One week later, on Wednesday the 22nd of July, Kathleen was enduring the typical day of a harassed mother. Being home for lunch, 14-year-old Tim and 15-year-old Tony were bickering as usual. Their flat was too small for a family of six, and with the boys sharing bunk beds, they often got on each other's nerves. With lunch finished, she was trying to wash up the dishes when she heard her boys in the other room getting in each other's faces. Boys, quit! she barked, knowing they were due back at school any moment, and with Tim off on his paper round soon enough, With the quibbling siblings split, the flat would soon become quieter. From the front room, Tony called out, Mum, he's hiding something! Dobbin his younger brother in, like a massive swat. Only Tim was adamant. I'm not, Mum. I'm not hiding nothing. Their father... A former heavy drinker was more of the disciplinarian, whose fast smacks could silence any nonsense. But their mother would be the first to admit that she was often a little too soft on her boys, especially Tim, as although bright, he was often bullied for wearing thick glasses owing to a squint. Their bickering continued. Mum, he's hiding something in his jacket. Boy's quiet that? down. Mum, I'm not. He's lying. Okay, enough, enough now. Mum, I can hear it jangle. Come on! He's lying! Prove, Prove it! it. Gimme your jacket! Off. Mom! But it was the next sentence which stopped Kathleen in her tracks. He has, Mum! He's, Mom. he's, he's got, got some keys! keys. <laughs> for a whole week, she had searched for her keys. She'd looked everywhere, and she had asked everyone, but nothing had been found. And now, furious at his little joke, the fun and games were over. With a look only a mother could give, the kind which makes all boys' bits shrivel, she barked, Hand me back my work keys. Timothy froze. Hand me back my work keys, now. But still he didn't move, as the only movement was a single tear which trembled on his lid. But Kathleen was not joking. Timothy, keys, now. Unwilling to put up with his shit anymore, Kathleen snatched his jacket off the chair, she reached inside his pocket, and as was expected, with a distinctive jangle, she pulled out a set of keys. Only these were not Kathleen's keys. And as she held them, her face became etched with horror. Timothy? What are you doing with Samuel's keys?" She didn't want to think it. She did not But as her youngest son began to cry, there seemed to be only one answer, and it was the unthinkable. Unsure what to do, Kathleen sent him back to school while she discussed it with his father. At 4.30pm, a little later than usual, he sheepishly returned, grabbed his bike, and headed out on his paper round. It was a part-time job he had been doing since January, and earning one pound a week. Ten shillings he kept for himself, and the other ten shillings were paid on a weekly basis to Samuel. Back then, his mother had protected him. As being a good lad, she had begged Samuel not to go to the police, and a local probation officer had arranged the repayment of the £26 he had stolen. But this was different. This was murder. At 7.15pm, Timothy returned home to 7 Randolph Avenue. For Kathleen, it was possibly the hardest decision that any mother would ever have to make. But she knew it was right. Tim, you know what we've got to do, don't you? She calmly cooed. And he did. With a quivering lip, Tim cried, Yes, Mum, I won't hold it against you if you turn me in. And as he dressed, she said that he cried bitterly. It was only a 10 minute walk down the Edgware Road, but it would be the longest walk of their lives. At 8.30pm, Kathleen and Timothy Cotter arrived at Paddington Green Police Station as this devoted mother and son stood quietly holding each other's hands. Interviewed by Detective Superintendent Howlett, the DS asked the boy, Your mother's told me she found Samuel Bragg's keys in your pocket and that you told her you may be the cause of his death. Timothy nodded, and he was cautioned. In a brief confession, he would state I went into his room to get some money. I took his keys off his trousers, and as I was looking through his drawers, Mr Bragg woke up. I I panicked. I, I picked up the pillow. I held it there for about one or two minutes. He was breathing when I left him. I know he was. Those words were Timothy's own. But as he was still only a child, his confession had to be countersigned by his mum. Except for the keys, nothing else was stolen. But as he sat there, the boy's motive became obvious. As Tim would cry, I stole three shillings of your change, mum. I'm sorry. I wanted to make it up to you. That evening, as no relative had claimed Samuel Bragg's body, a second autopsy was conducted at St Pancras Mortuary to determine if this was in fact not a case of accidental smothering. But of murder. As before, his injuries were consistent with accidental asphyxiation. There were no signs of assault, no evidence of manual or ligature strangulation, nor any obstruction to the airways. But given that the man was old, frail, and weak, the pathologist deduced that it was perfectly possible for a boy to press a pillow over the old man's face for one or two minutes and to induce unconsciousness and even death this kind of injury would have ordinarily have caused bruising to the lips but as samuel had taken out his false teeth no bruising had occurred on wednesday the 22nd of july 1964 following a further investigation and a second autopsy. In the presence of his mother, 14-year-old Timothy Cotter was charged with the murder of Samuel Bragg. To many, Timothy Cotter was a harmless young boy who made a mistake to pay back his mum. But as his story came out, The more people talked. Many people knew he had stolen £26 from Samuel, but what only a handful of people knew was how much the old man was worth. Had Timothy found the right key, he'd have seen that the cash tin contained an assortment of notes and coins worth £30, and a post office savings book with a credit of £3,400 almost £67,000 today. Some may blame his friends, but others would state that Timothy had a dark side. As a few days after the murder, he relayed the facts of his burglary to a pal, with the cool calmness of a career criminal. Dr. P.D. Scott conducted a psychological assessment of Timothy, who stated... This boy is of superior intelligence. He displays a callousness towards his victim and admits to stealing to feed his new tastes, buying records, fancy clothes, and going out to dances. He has regretted the offense largely because of its implications to himself rather than because of sympathy for his victim. The only hint of violence is his fantasy in his depiction of how he would deal with homosexual men in cinemas, stating, I would slam them or stub them with cigarettes. Tried on the 8th of September 1964, at the Old Bailey, he pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter, and the jury accepted this. On the 15th of September, 14-year-old Timothy Noel Cotter, was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Upon hearing this, his face was emotionless. Unlike his mother, who was in floods of tears.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cough, cough,
2: splutter. Cough, cough, splutter. Oh, I coughed and coughed all the way through that. That was a hard one to do i think my uh because of all the coughing i've been doing i can't hear out of my my ears so i've no idea i can just about hear myself today my hearing just went oh really weird just before i started recording recording oh one day i will get well again um hey folks it's extra mile so before we dive into extra mile i've got a little treat for you a little treat for you to enjoy so uh, two days ago at the weekend, uh, I uh, very kindly, uh, uh, Mark and Bethan from the Seeing Red podcast invited me onto their show. Uh, we had a really lovely morning. We did, did a couple of uh, podcasts together. While I was there, I said to them, hey, guys, how about? I, I, it wasn't like that. I was like, hey, guys, it wasn't like that. I was like, can I ask you some questions as well? And then I'll play it out on Murder Mile. Uh, so what I did was I, I, <laughs> I did them a series of questions, which I didn't tell them about in advance. Uh, so they, they've never heard these answers and i think it it gave uh, for a really interesting interview uh it's interesting questions about murder which helps you explore more about who they are and it it, it, they came up with some great answers so uh we're going to play that now enjoy it and then after that we're going to do extra mile enjoy ladies and gentlemen We've got a very exciting interview this week. Oh, I say this week, it's like I rarely do interviews, but this is exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Beth and Mark from Seeing Red. Hello everybody. Hi
3: everybody, hello. That was a lovely introduction. I feel special. I, sc-
2: I scripted it, I've been rehearsing that all week. Ah. <laughs> that would explain <laughs> it.
3: Oh, oh yes. I feel very honoured. Thank you for I having sh- us.
2: I should
4: really have done
3: a... it. It's
4: not one of those. It's not too late to put sound effects in in, in the edit.
2: I do it well with with you guys. What I'll do is I'll, I'll do little farty sound effects. Like... <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always good with us. We love that kind of humor.
1: Wonderful. We love it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I,
4: lovely to okay, t- tell us about your show, guys. Uh, so we are uh, Seeing Red, a True Crime podcast. Uh, we are, I reckon we're coming up for four years, I think, aren't we, Bethan?
3: We are, nearly four so years. So we are
4: probably, I don't know, 160, 170 episodes deep. Uh, we've been on a real journey with it from the beginning uh, to where we are now. So uh, yeah, each week we uh, we choose a different crime. We take it in turns to tell the other about said crime and, um, and kind of chip in with our, our thoughts around it. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, we were quite heavily UK focused for the first hundred or so episodes, I guess. And, uh, now we've, we've broadened our horizons and, and we cover crimes from all over the world. So we've covered everything from the murder of Jill Dando, uh, which obviously happened in London, uh, right through to the, the assassination of Kim Yong Nam, the brother of Kim Yong Un, which happened in. Uh, I can't even remember where it was now, Bethan. Fascinating, I was guess Was so. Thailand? No, it was, uh. I
3: think Thailand.
4: Kuala Lumpur? I don't know. Uh, so. Oh, yeah, in the, in the airport. It was in the airport, yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, we, uh, yeah, just take it in turns to tell each other about a case that we find particularly fascinating. And, uh, yeah, we're still loving it all these years later
3: and we kind what? of find it fun because we can have conversations even though it's still quite factual and sensible and sh- and scripted we can have a bit of back and forth around some of our theories and our thoughts and it it's really good fun actually to kind of discuss the cases in a little bit more detail and get someone else's opinion because quite often we'll differ in our opinions or differ slightly even or we'll have a different take on something and it's it's quite fun to bounce off each other with that
2: yeah For listeners, what's a what's a go to episode? What's your favourite?
3: Oh, Mm. if you want to hear us being a bit irreverent, then Peru (laughs) Two, because that's quite fun, and I think a lot of people will understand that it can be a bit light hearted. So Peru Two, I'll just explain what
4: that one uh, was about. So that was uh, Melissa Reed and Michaela McCollum. So they were the two uh, drug mules. Uh, that were allegedly recruited by this gang to to carry drugs from uh from Peru uh back across to to europe and um it, it was all bullshit they uh they'd done it for a few a few grand and uh we we sort of had a bit of a laugh at their expense really because I think it was valid and um yeah that's a, a crazy episode. I think I might have mixed some painkillers with some other pills uh during <laughs> the recording so definitely. Definitely um, a fun one. There's
3: some definite one-liners from Mark in that one. I don't know one. what I
4: what I was nice. thinking. That, that's a great go-to, though. You're right, Betham.
3: I think that's quite fun if you want to see us in, like, a less serious side. And then there's quite a few that are, are very serious, but maybe something like Hillsborough, maybe, would be quite a good one to see us having a conversation, but from more of a serious side of things.
4: Yeah, I, I tend um, to find with, with any... Um, any huge crime, any, any massive disaster, uh, that's really Bethan's domain. And, and, Bethan's covered numerous cases, uh, like Hillsborough and, um, always covers them so sensitively. And will there's so much in a, in a, in a case like that that we can't possibly cover even 1% of it in an hour long episode. But Bethan is great at honing in on, on some, individual stories and and victims and um really telling it from from their point of view so that they're, they're always the very harrowing episodes those those large-scale uh crimes so we, we've covered terrorist attacks as well uh like the seven seven bombings that was another another one for me that that resonated and, and just stayed with me so much
2: super well to both of you um i haven't sent you these questions so this is going to be great i've, I've written a series <laughs> of questions
3: i'm so nervous i the,
2: the aim with these is to learn more about you uh through these questions so oh, let's get ready first question so obviously you two know each other really well how would you murder each other oh jesus um
3: what would ooh, be the I'd most drug form- him. what was that I just drug him. He would drink anything <laughs> I put in front of him, so I could quite easily slip a poison into anything he was going to drink.
4: Awesome. I think, yeah. If um, <laughs> if Bethan told me it was an alcoholic beverage, it, it would be down the hatch, and I'd uh, I'd die to yeah. regret it later.
3: I didn't really have to think I'm worried about very this much, I'm yeah. worried
4: because this means that was quick. You thought about this sorry
3: that was far too quick wasn't it that was Bef- too quick before sorry. I
4: clearly before I give my answer on that I am um, I ju- just kind of slightly on the same topic I do sometimes think that me and Bethan would actually make a great double act of committing a crime because we know so much yeah and I think uh, I think particularly if it were around robbery I think we'd um, or pulling off some massive kind of con I think we'd we'd absolutely nail it so I probably Probably yeah, I reckon I give so. that a bit more thought. In terms of murdering Bethan, it would have to be a bloodbath. Yeah, I
3: don't want to get in on a murder by the way. No, we don't, no we don't. We don't want to do that. that. I'll get in on a con, but not a I murder. think for
4: murdering you, Bethan, it would have to be some <laughs> kind of bloodbath because I'd want it to be featured on an episode of a true crime podcast. Maybe Mike could pick it up. We could travel Jeez. travel to London. So, I think some kind of like abattoir type setting, using some of the implements nice. to hack her to pieces and she'd have to end with a <laughs> a good old-fashioned beheading, I think.
3: Maybe oh, a
2: chainsaw.
3: A chainsaw. Heck. Mike,
4: this is perfect. Thank you. Um, I'm going to make some notes. <laughs> Hang on. Am
3: I am I dead before you start doing this? or?
4: Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, perhaps. We'll see on the day, won't we? <laughs> have, have,
2: have, have I just ruined seeing red?
3: <laughs> I'm not doing it anymore. I'm gone. Yeah,
4: this ain't, ain't going to happen anymore. <laughs> At least she said she was only going to drug me. That's, you know, I can deal with that um i'm re- i'm really going to go to town on on and if it ever happened
2: yeah, but it could—the it could, drug could be cyanide, <laughs> and you could be—you could be gagging on really, real, or really horrible hydrochloric acid. That, so it could be a really painful
3: that's death.
4: That's true it's going to be this...
3: now. now that I've heard what he wants to do to me, it's going to be really <laughs> painful, don't you? Well, worry. it's going
4: to be some kind of nerve agent, I reckon. Because <laughs> with the Kim Jong Nam episode, obviously he was kind of drugged, and he had this liquid sort of uh, poured over his face, and uh, you know it was a awful way to die. He's defecating himself at the airport and uh, sort of. um Yeah, kind of drowning in his own blood from the inside. It was appalling. So, yeah, a a drug death isn't always an easy death. That's my (laughs) motto, and I'm sticking with it. Cool.
2: Aren't you glad I asked that question? No.
4: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Terrified now.
2: See, we've learned a lot about you already. So, Mm -hmm. okay, you've alluded to the idea that you would make great serial killers, but... Men have a tendency to, as serial killers to only last about two years. Women tend to last nine years. So how long would each of you last as a serial killer, and what would trip you up?
1: Mm.
3: Ooh. See, the thing that I always find fascinating is when somebody can't help themselves by blabbing
1: Mm.
2: And I
3: reckon that would be Mark. No, it would not. I'm sorry to not answer about myself, but I reckon (laughs) you would, you'd just be like, do you know what? I haven't had enough notoriety yet. I'm just going to send one letter to a paper just to get a bit more interest. You are right. And I'll be like, no, Mark, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And you'd be like, oh, no, babes, don't worry. It'll be fine. You'd send the letter. It'd have your fingerprint on. We'd get caught. The
4: problem is, what's the point of going to all that trouble Uh, if you're not gonna get some sort of notoriety at the time. So yeah, I think, I, I was kind of like, no, 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 I wouldn't do it. But you're right. The minute you mentioned a letter to the new, to the local newspapers or something, I was like, yeah, that's so me. Um, so yeah, you're probably right, Beth. And I, I wouldn't last two months. I don't think.
3: Probably do a think selfie as well. At? Yeah. Selfies.
4: I think, I think you, um, I think you're like a silent assassin almost. So I think you'd just kind of really feast upon. Uh being more and more depraved, so I think eventually you you would probably put uh the desire to kill before anything else, and you might just fuck up with some of the evidence, leaving that oh and get sloppy, yeah, I think you might get yeah, sloppy, I think true. you just get drunk on the feeling of killing, I think that's very you, isn't it so Ooh. or just drunk or just yeah, drunk <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> a very interesting question, hopefully we never have to uh find out for real, but uh there's still time, I guess.
2: Wow! So neither of you would last that long. I don't. I don't
4: think we would. No, unfortunately. How long would you last, Mike?
2: A less than a day. Really? You, I've I've already thought about this. I would. I would be so remorseful. I'd be so upset that I would probably write a letter to the victim's family saying, "I'm really sorry about what I've done." I'm going to the police station. I just. I. I I'm full of guilt all the time. I could. Just... Being raised a Catholic, that's the problem. Full of guilt. Yeah, one hundred percent. That will be hour. that
4: for sure. Yeah.
2: Uh, impossible, isn't it? Um, here's one. If the press were going to give you a serial killer nickname, what would it be? Oh. now mine. Just just to give you an idea, mine
3: would be mm-hmm.
2: the the Ditherer, because I'm really <laughs> shit at making decisions.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! Um, I think I feel like I would need a week to think about to think of the best kind of name that I could come up with <laughs> for myself. It'd probably be something really boring. Um, I just I don't know the Bristol Basher.
3: I think mine would kind. Of... Oh, that's so we'll good. take it. I was I can't think of what mine would be properly. I'll have a proper think, but I feel like it'd be something like on a play on words about like baking a cake or something, because I feel like they'd pick up on something that I'd done nice that was like I'd made a cake for someone, but then also murdered people. So I don't know if it'd be something like that, but I'm not really sure.
2: It's always those weird things, isn't it? The press always pick up on something obscure and you just go, why? Why have you done that? Like, um, uh, I've got one coming up, an episode coming up soon about the Angel Delight killer. Angel Delight (laughs) killer, he he was briefly a model for Angel Delight uh, years ago. He, he doesn't a, kill anyone with Angel modern. Delight. That's ridiculous, yeah, it's, isn't it? I know. It's, it's, so it's the like Angel
3: Delight has nothing to do with it. It was just something nope. from his past.
2: Literally, he is the face of Angel Delight. They changed the branding once. They put his face on the front cover because he has an angelic face. And that's it. So he became the Angel Delight killer. And you just go... Why are you lazy bastards? Have you got no, no brains yeah. in order to create a great story? I um, yeah.
4: I, I I'm a massive fan of uh, of the TV series Columbo, and um, I. I always think knowing the Columbo episodes inside out as I do and the kind of crimes that would the murders that would present themselves in that show. Obviously, I know this is fiction before anyone says it's uh, you do know that's not true crime. I know it's fiction, but I, I actually think a great um a great story would be a true crime podcaster. Uh, sort of getting obsessed with with the trade of it and uh, going out and committing, trying to commit the perfect murder, perhaps, uh, thinking that they're yeah. the expert and they could get away with it. So I think I think there's potentially something in that. It could it could happen.
2: I think that's it, isn't it? I think a lot of, we we read a lot of stuff and we think, oh God, we'd be great at this. But I don't think we. Which interestingly brings <laughs> us on to the next question. Realistically. Could you kill someone realistically? We've, we, I think think
3: we've debated
2: that,
4: haven't we? I don't think
3: I could. I think it would have to have been heat of the moment. You've just done something to someone really close to me and I react. I think that's the only way. I just don't think I could bring myself to take another life. In any other situation. I don't think that any amount of money could lure me. I don't think any amount of power. I just can't see that ever happening. Unless it was a case that something has just happened. And you're in front of me. And I grab the first thing and, and hit you. Or shove you or whatever it is. Um, but no, I don't think I could premeditate anything.
2: Mm. It, it, would, it would be a snap, wouldn't it? Like a...
3: I think it would have to be for me. I, I... I'm quite mm. a good liar at generally in general like I think I could be quite a good liar <laughs> but I don't think I could then lie about something I like don't that. Know. I enough think you to get away with premeditating. I think you
4: could Bethan. I think you're Beth is really cool and collected and calm under any pressure. Uh I always I always, <laughs> always call, I always a always call freak, her a freak uh, and I always used to when we worked together <laughs> in particular but I still call her a freak once a week. And um the reason I call you a freak is because you just don't uh, you don't really w- well you don't appear to worry about the the normal stuff that lots of people worry about and um, you don't ever really get nervous as well and I would try and goad Beth and and sort of be like oh don't you feel nervous about this thing that's coming up or whatever and she'd be like no I'm really excited about it and I'm like for fuck's sake you're an absolute freak this is not normal so I think <laughs> you would be so calm and collected if you were ever interviewed uh, and under pressure if you were uh, if you were interviewed by the police I think you'd you'd be fine with it whereas for me i'd be the one uh they'd come knocking on the door to ask me about a burglary up the road and i'd be like it was me it was me just take me away even though i've done nothing wrong um but yeah it's uh, i think i could kill someone i think you know our show's called seeing red and um i think i think most of us have this uh ability to uh, just acts massively out of character if our buttons if the wrong buttons are pushed and I, I know that I've reacted and exploded in rage before which is massively out of character for me and um, yeah I think it's I think it's possible I think people can see red and flip and massively overreact and, and live to regret it so I think I'm capable for sure
2: we all have a breaking point yeah, yeah.
4: don't cross me and some... don't fuck with me and it could happen
2: <laughs> Don't fuck (laughs) with me. Coughing my way through this uh, recording. Well done, Michael. Well done. Um, I'm going to test your morals now.
3: Oh, fun! Love this.
2: Adolf Hitler. Okay, notoriously bit of a bastard. We all know that. Responsible for murder. Major uh, bastard. Potentially uh, major bastard. Naughty
3: boy. Bit of a naughty boy.
2: Absolutely murdering millions of people. Um, So. If you had a time machine and a gun, would you kill him as a baby? Kill him before he gets started.
4: Yeah, 100%. Um,
3: I always struggle with things like this because I think there's so much more and there's the whole butterfly effect that no.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Potentially um, at some point during his rise to power where you haven't got too many people who believe what he also believes and then will follow his lead and someone else could step in and take his place but i feel like you you need to put something in place to make sure that nobody else started to have the same ideas that he had because he's not he wasn't alone so i think if you just killed him as a baby someone else would have been blood of hitler instead so i no i don't think i do it as a baby but later mm. on
2: Interesting, isn't it? Because it's uh, it's a question that people often ask, and then you say to yourself, "But what has a baby done? Baby has done yeah. nothing. It knows nothing."
3: Mm-hmm. So yeah, and it's, like it's, he did do some good paintings. Fucking at hell, point, Bethan. Didn't he? So, Jesus. like you don't want to lose them completely. No, I, I am being very blase there, but I just think like <laughs> there there would be up to a certain point where. Would it really change history anyway? Because I feel like someone would do something anyway. And then actually maybe you could change history by changing his mindset somehow or maybe Mm. you could make a difference in a different way rather than just shooting or maybe
4: it would ultimately yeah the the kind of reality that plays out if you did go back and kill Mm. him it could ultimately be worse it could be that somebody else rises to power that's twice as bad as hitler was it's a really difficult one but and the other thing is could could, when push comes to shove could you actually do it anyway i don't i don't think i could kill any baby you're absolutely right but yeah theoretically Mm. i'd like to think that i could have put a stop to uh, to what he went on to to wreak across the world
2: it makes you wonder whether any of us you know we, we've all had kind of nice lives it makes you wonder whether any of us could be the next hitler like if our lives would have gone a different way I, I i do agree with that i always say we we discuss this
4: quite a bit on our show um i think you know there but for the grace of god go i and i don't mean that from a religious perspective it's just that kind of saying isn't it that um, we we quite often have empathy with the perpetrators in our episodes not not always of course but sometimes we do have empathy with them because we can see that their life they just didn't get the right opportunities at the right time that we perhaps did and it put them on a different path and a path to to destruction Uh, it doesn't excuse what they did but I'm always very lucky and grateful uh, that I I lived the life I get to, to live and I didn't go on that path and make the wrong decisions because i could have done
1: mm.
3: yeah we always say this don't we it's um there's that statistic that you're only ever three months away from being fully homeless as a man in the uk it's a bit different with women because there's a lot more support but you lose your job in the first month and then if you don't get yourself on your feet within three months most um you know men in like that's the cat <laughs> <laughs> you just shoot her out a second
4: serial killer um, cat Every serial, every serial killer has a cat.
3: That's true, isn't it? Shh, don't don't tell them that. I've got three. <laughs> oh God. Um, but there is there's that kind of statistic that it could you could be in a position where you're homeless and then potentially you self medicate with drugs or alcohol or something to deal with what you're going through and who knows where anybody could end up six months down the line. It's it is a horrible. Kind of sobering thought, isn't it? To to remember that yes, that's still a, a horrible person who's done something awful, but thinking about maybe what took them to that point is is also mm. important.
1: Yeah.
2: Bizarre. Um. Which elements of your life would make you the best serial killer?
4: Hmm. I think I. I i think for me uh d- doing the show doing our podcast would be an advantage because i know what works and what doesn't work so for example if i wanted to be a serial killer um usually that that's pretty motiveless and that's why they can get away with it for a long time so i would know that not having a motive is important we know a lot about you could blame someone I else blame as well. somebody else yeah we and not
3: having yeah not having a type and then blaming it on somebody as a career. yeah so either. I think
4: I think that that would <laughs> that would help us um I think I just I probably would be pretty shit though because I, I'm the opposite to Bethany in that I'm always anxious always nervous always worried about stuff and um I I just that would completely make it not really practical to pursue that as a career for myself hence I chose to go into banking and then insurance so uh but yeah I don't think it would. Uh, I don't think I've got many qualities that would allow uh, me to be successful.
3: I can only think of things that would be negatives, and so things like the fact that I've got a young family. I'd kind of have to take the kids along to a lot of oh, things no. I do. So <laughs> that's not going to work very well. Um, and also, because I've got three cats, I'm definitely going to drop a cat hair at some position in somewhere. Yeah. And then it's going to be like that case mark Big going to where they caught the guy because his cat's hair was found in the crime scene. So I just think there's loads of things that would stop me being good. Even though I'm cool and calm and collected... Um, I, I think um, the cat. I'd get screwed over by other people. This is this is the problem. I think the cat hair. <laughs> Honestly, get...
4: Bethan, the cat hair would absolutely be your downfall. I think they would manage to to uh, get some samples of that from the crime scene and trace it right back to your cats and to you, and you'd be fucked. Really, yeah. I, I think I've probably got some good qualities that that would help. I'm, I can be quite methodical, um, and and maybe that's that that would help in in planning some of the killings um but also i'm kind of scared of the dark and stuff like we we did an episode on the man manchester canal pusher bethan did a two part episode on it brilliant episode and we don't know if if crimes were being committed but a number of people found themselves in the manchester canal network over a few years and and there were lots of deaths and but potentially more so than you would get on any other canal network. So we didn't know if there was this mysterious pusher in place and there was some horrific witness testimony of uh, one guy was pushed into the canal, desperately uh, trying to claw his way uh, onto the bank, back out. And uh, this guy stood above him and put his uh, his foot calmly on this guy's hand and kind of crushed it to stop him getting out. But my point is, uh, I couldn't do something like that because t- for me to walk along a canal at 10 o'clock at night, in the dark, I'd be shitting myself. So it's just not going to happen. Welcome to my life. Yeah, I couldn't do it, honestly Mike, I couldn't do it.
2: Kudos to you. It's uh, I, All I've got in my head now is the idea of uh, Beth I'm out to go and commit a murder and then halfway through going, oh hang on, I need to get a babysitter. Yeah,
4: or like yeah. damn these kids <laughs> with me, you asking for a you know glass of milk or something I'm trying to kill someone here. <laughs>
2: I've got to go to toilet and, and yeah. don't go to the toilet. Yes, I've got to murder this Yeah, person. we don't want any DNA oh, around. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah, please don't leave your DNA around because you've learned to blow raspberries or something stupid. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so, one final question. If either of you were to find out that the other was a serial killer, what would you do?
3: Oh, that's a really interesting thought. I would totally take full advantage, I'd want exclusive rights to everything, but I'd also, totally like it would—you'd be going down, Mark. I'm sorry. I'd, I'd write to you in prison, but I'm not keeping your secret.
4: I think, yeah, I um, I, I find I, I, bizarrely, I wouldn't disbelieve it if I found out that Bethan was a serial killer. So <laughs> oh, um, there would be an element of me that would be like, "Yep, the the jigsaw pieces are fitting into place." So I kind of I knew this oh day my was God. coming.
3: I'd be shocked about you. You'd be shocked. So no, that's you, fair. I,
4: I don't think I've got it in me. I could see you doing it. You're so calm and um, yeah, psychotic. <laughs> So uh, no, I'm just kidding. You're not that bad. Uh,
3: I feel like Mike's literally only got us on to interview us, so he can split. Honestly,
4: us yeah, he wants uh, he wants yeah, to take, the take the one of our Um I, I yeah, <laughs> we'd have, I think we'd, we're quite moralistic, actually, aren't we? So we'd have to grass each other up. But I think I, I would relish uh, having a friend as that's a serial killer, and I, you know, I'm not diminishing from the the pain that you would have uh, wrought and the, the victims and their families and all of that. That obviously goes without saying, but I fucking dine out on this for the rest of my entire life that I my friend is a serial killer and um and I knew her really well and yeah that'd be my dinner party you'd piece. be getting
3: involved on in the Netflix do- documentary yeah I'd, I'd you? absolutely I'd upset. sell you
4: down the river and um yeah. I'd, I'd build a massive profile for myself off your back and I think you'd support that to be fair so
3: yeah no I'd be doing the same and I'd be I'd be you, fine actually. I'd be having like yeah I'd be interviewing you and then writing a book and. I'd, I, I'd sneak you some like contraband into prison. Though. I would yeah. get you some like vodka or yep, something. Yeah, some drugs.
4: Um, I'd I'd do the same for you. So I think we'd have each other's backs, but we, we'd you. totally have to accept that we couldn't let the other get away with that. And um, yeah, yeah we'd uh, but we'd milk it for all it was worth for sure. There'd be a nice six parter episode coming up on on it, wouldn't there?
2: I think this is amazing. We've gone from uh, an interview where it started off with the two of you wanted to murder each other with, with poisoning and a, in an abattoir. <laughs> I and, now, that. and now, and now you've come back together and coalesced into a, a beautiful unit.
4: <laughs> I think it's a weird, it's a weird relationship that you have to have when you, cause obviously we present the show together. So, um, yeah, we're very different, aren't we? But I, weirdly, it just works for us. So. I think it would work in lots of other facets of life. If if one of us was a serial killer, we'd bizarrely have each other's backs. Uh, although we would still grass each other up, we'd we'd still support each other. I'm I'm sure.
3: It is a weird. It is a weird thought, though, isn't it? When you think about like potentially, it's different because we're not family or related or in a relationship. So we have a working relationship, and we have. A business side and we have a friendship but when it's like what if it was your own son that's what always no. freaks me out is when people have to make a decision that in depth i think you're like this there's, there's almost no no other option but to give up your friend sadly sorry mark but what if it's your flesh and blood that freaks no. me out a little bit
4: Yeah. And I don't, I honestly don't think you could answer that objectively until you're in that situation because we've covered loads of, loads of cases, uh, where the perpetrator's mum, for example, has, has found out what they've been doing. Sometimes they're shocked by, by their own family and other times they're massively protected by them. So, uh, it's, it's not like a hard and fast rule for, for, for anyone that, Mm. oh, it's family. So I'll protect them there's that kind of nurturing desire to protect at all costs. It doesn't, that can go out the window quite easily when uh, when values are compromised
2: so heavily. I think we've learned a lot about you guys today. Good and bad. This is this is going to be on record <laughs> forever. I mean,
4: we, neither of us can now become Exhibit a serial a. killer or kill the other. Or actually, even if just one of us gets murdered, the other is going to be prime suspect. So we've we fucked that up for sure. I know.
3: If, if you die and it looks like poison, they're going to be knocking on my door. And if you
4: ever find yourself in an abattoir, Beth, then just watch your back, yeah?
3: I'm not going to an abattoir. No, don't. Ever. Please don't. In my life. No, can, cancel <laughs> your plans. And if you invite me somewhere... If you invite me to Soho, I'm not coming. No way,
2: God no! <laughs> oh yeah, if if you do murder each other, do it in Soho, please. We're, yeah, Mike, we'll do we, it in
3: your. We'll
4: do it in your. In, yeah, your we'll spot. do it in your patch. Oh. We couldn't think of anyone better to uh, to cover the case, so it would have to be around. So I'll make you guys sound great. Perfect. I'm happy with Thank that.
3: Thank you. Yeah,
2: <laughs> real. So thank you guys. Uh, your podcast is Seeing Red. Where do people find this? Uh, they can find it wherever. Anywhere, yeah, anywhere really. they, listen to, they listen to their
4: uh, podcast, we're on Spotify and whatever the rest of them are called. So yeah, just search search and Seeing Red, a true crime podcast, and you'll find us.
3: We release every Wednesday, so they can come and have. They've got loads of back issues as well. We're up to season seven. Oh, what now, I
4: would say, crazy. the only thing I'd say is uh, I'd encourage anyone to start at the more recent episodes because uh, we were pretty shit back in the day, weren't we?
3: We like to say that we recorded on a potato. It's that bad sound quality. <laughs> I used to sit in a cupboard oh, and record on my phone. So, um, yeah, definitely listen to more recent episodes first. And then if you like us, you could probably put up with the terrible sound quality.
2: Great. Thank you so much for coming, guys. It's been a pleasure to talk with Thank you. Thank you for having us, Mike. Thank
3: you for having us. Bye. Bye. Bye.
4: Bye.
2: there you go how was that did you enjoy that bit of fun uh check out seeing red really good uh, uh uk and international based true crime podcast mark and Bethan are really lovely people as well uh i'm sure i, I know most of you already listen to murder listen to seeing red as well so give them a go give them a go I'll, I'll, I'll pop a link in the show notes remind me to do that remind me to do that i'll put a link in the show notes uh, but if not just type in seeing red there you go um so hope you enjoyed that episode uh let's make a cup a couple of tea let's make a nice cup of tea oh dear lord Uh, (coughs) oh let's uh let's not do a regular tea i'm gonna do uh what am i gonna do i'm gonna do one of these herbal teas an herbal tea nice open some windows oh god i can't hear anything out of these ears which means i can't hear eva shouting at me going where's my cocktail because it's, it's what time is it now just go on at half past 12 I mean, she'll be coming out of a uh post booze slumber she'll be shouting in a bit there'll be puked down atop. top as always you know what she's like uh so yeah that's on the go um good this is all going good what's going on in in my little crappy little world Uh, oh welcome to extra mile i should say that uh, new listeners this is extra mile uh unscripted unedited we do some quiz questions in a bit i tell you more about the case (gasps) i did i haven't put it into my notes i'm an idiot i forgot to do that i'll do that in a second so what's going on in my world uh i was meant to be at the hospital today to get my eyes checked out because i've had a month of where the whites of my eyes have been bright red like my eyes developed an infection i've had it for a long time and it got to the point where i couldn't put my new contact lenses in and i was like oh no there's nothing worse that means i've got to go back to the old lenses which uh were quite painful uh so i was meant to be in hospital today getting that sorted i was like oh this is going to be months of agony but my, I got a really good eye specialist, and in advance he said before you come and see me, I want you to do all of these different things. And it turned out I've I've had a reaction to one of my lens solutions. I, it uh, solution toxic, toxicity, he said. So I changed that, that lens, and now my eyes are fine, which is great. I take pictures of my eyes every day to check check that they're okay and they're good. So uh, everything is good. I've still I, I think I come out of COVID isolation tomorrow. That's my uh, my. Uh, data escape (coughs) whether i've had covid or not i don't know i said this last week some people seem to get it really badly i'm fully vaccinated and fully boosted and all that um and i I isolate properly and i wear a mask and i sanitize my hands i do everything properly as you should still i think i think we should all still have a level of security about us as they do in japan do you know when they have a cold they wear masks why haven't we developed that to protect other people from just simple things like colds, which is still one of the biggest killers. Still no cure for it. It's amazing that we don't we don't live in our society where we don't, you know. Do you know when people have a cold at work and they go, oh, don't worry, I made it in. <laughs> and they get the sympathy vote. And it's just like, I hate those people. They're just like the, the wankers who spread colds everywhere. I think we should have, a, we should all start wearing masks when we're going to feel a cold coming on. That should be standard for all of us now. But, no, we've uh, we've all decided that uh, masks were only a temporary thing. Uh, I'm still wearing mine. Still wearing mine in the shops. And people, people look at you and go, oh, Why are you wearing a mask? Boris has said you don't have to wear a mask. You, the, therefore, he sent a letter to the virus, and the virus said, Okay, I won't infect people anymore. I'm going to wear a mask and there's nothing anyone can do about it, I just, I just rather not infect other people, especially as I have relatives who are unwell, and I don't want to make them sick, and I'd love to go and visit them, uh, what else is going on, uh, still on my diet, I'm on that final bit as before, where kind of the bulk of the weight has come off, but I'm still struggling to get rid of the, uh, the, 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 the final bit oh still a bit fat uh have putting cake back into my diet and last week i tried out one of these uh free from cakes do you know the ones that are like free from eggs free from wheat and it was like a, a sponge and i thought oh this is going to be horrible but i tried it and they're really nice i'm really impressed and because no one likes them they were going really cheap as well so uh, yeah nice i uh, five little slices they were very nice uh what else is going on live shows doing live shows uh, t- uh tickets available in the show notes um we've got the first one going up in uh, glasgow end of june uh paul at uh, uh, so that one's organized by uh adam at uk true crime who we're doing the show with uh paul of uh, uh true crime enthusiast who we're also doing the show with he's organizing one over in kind of liverpool area uh, uh, liverpool or manchester area uh, and i'm going to be organizing one in kind of uh, august september time in london so uh we've got some extra shows coming up only one available ticket wise at the moment where the rest we're kind of sorting out but that is moving ahead so that'll be very exciting um thank you to my new patron supporters who are sarah lear month uh karen burns and liz dakin thank you all three that's very kind of you thank you for becoming patron supporters hope you enjoy all the all the secret goodies that are in patreon that no one else gets no one else gets i don't i the the some the videos get released like a week later uh into the world and my special little videos are kind of there as well but walk with me doesn't get released anywhere and the the secret like the, the special uh crime scene photos they never get released i don't release them into the world they stay on patreon so if you want to see things that you won't see anywhere else join the patreon group nice people and it's good fun right let's do some quiz questions while i have a slurp of my Herbly tea, which was uh, it's it's one with licorice, very nice, very nice. Uh, question number one: What did Samuel? Uh, what did Samuel Bragg's dad do as a job? So, what did what job did Samuel Bragg's dad do? Question number two: What did actor Kevin Klein shout on the corner of Randolph Avenue? It was one word, and if you want, you could shout it right now. Uh, Question number three, what size was Samuel Bragg's room? Question four, what did he steal every morning from outside Mr Rosen's door? Question five, how did Kathleen guess that old Samuel was seriously ill? Question six, what did Timothy spend the three shillings on? Question 7. What was Timothy buying when he stole the three shillings off his mum? Question 8. What's the nearest murder so far to this specific case? As mentioned at the start of the episode. Uh, question 9. What hospital was Samuel sent to when he was ill in 1962? Uh, number 10. What two jobs do we know that Samuel did? right let's dive into some uh details normally i i I pop these into a a nice little bundle afterwards so i can look at them but i just i forgot to do it today um so what do we know about samuel we we know that he moved in march 1955 into the flat he's pretty much a recluse he paid 14 shillings 10 pence per week it was a council run lodging it's very nice and posh now but back then it was it's amazing all these houses especially in west london which are council run tenant tenements and many of them were like ready to be demolished and then people were like Oh, actually no, these are nice buildings will keep them and they're do you know so i was looking at one of the bill bu- one of the buildings on randolph avenue yesterday and in uh late 1999 so that yeah no, so 1999, late, late, end of the last century. uh One of these uh, flats was worth, I think it was like £130,000. Today, just 20 years later, over a million. It's ridiculous. I don't know. No one can afford to live in houses anymore unless you already own a house or you gifted it or you've got an inheritance or you bought it later on. I've no idea. It's hard to do that now. And God knows for like the children who are born today god knows how they're going to be able to afford to live in houses if if the prices are going up at a ridiculous rate it's ridiculous it really is um what else we got let's have a look let's dive through it uh timothy timothy noel cotter 14 years old born in 1949 he was a schoolboy. he was healthy wore glasses uh as mentioned he had a bit of a squint to his eye um family are Irish. Originally I'd prepared to do a nice Irish accent for Kathleen, but I couldn't get it to work on the day, so I did a kind of a country one. Who cares? It kind of works anyway, doesn't it? Um They'd lived there for twelve years. Uh Timothy Sr. was uh the father, he was a respectable working class man, a builder's foreman. Uh Anthony, who was a year older, shared a bunk bed with Timothy, with Timothy on top. Uh, Jean Eleanor was the younger daughter; she was twelve years old. She lived there as well, and they had an older sister who was already married and had moved out by that point. Uh, by all accounts, they were very much a unified and an affectionate family. They were very close. Um, Timothy attended uh, a Roman Catholic uh, uh, Roman Catholic primary school, uh, where he passed his eleven plus. Uh, and then he went to the Central Foundation Grammar School for Boys over in EC2, which is kind of the area. Um, he was dismissed in April 1964 for not working hard enough, and he now attended... Uh, by that point, he was now attending a, a secondary modern school in Marleybone. Now, April 1964 is kind of significant. We'll try and dive into some of these details in a bit, because there's more that... Uh, let's... Let me... Just scroll down let me try and find these details um the robbery the previous robbery that had gone on um where was it uh yeah timothy would admit that he'd stolen 26 pounds from samuel he got into his room he got the keys he got into the box so he'd actually done this all before um uh uh, kathleen didn't want her son to get a criminal record uh so she took him to a probation officer and they agreed that in order to deal with this without going to the police uh that uh if timothy paid back the money over a period of weeks then that would be fine that would be acceptable which is which is kind of in a way that's kind of nice sometimes you don't want a, a child to get a criminal record sometimes you want to say you need to pay back the money you this is how you're going to rip, make am- amends and it's interesting with um with timothy he does it seems in a way like he is a kind of a good boy at art but he's just going through a difficult time or you know teenage years he seems to be getting in with a bad crowd you know his mother's kind of struggled struggling to look after him so but he's a good boy he seems to get quite upset about things but yeah (coughs) times are a-changing unfortunately uh where is let me this is why I like to have my details all kind of in one place, because then I could just look at it and go, ah, there we go. Um, yeah, he he confessed to a, a local boy, a friend of his, uh, described as a blonde boy called Kenneth Rogers. Um, he was hanging out with Kenneth just before this. Uh, noisy seagulls uh just before the murder took place they'd met up they'd gone, gone out on bikes together they'd gone to the uh the the kind of the youth club around the corner um and timothy would say i left him before i did the job so he'd, he would later refer to the the robbery and the murder as the job um for some reason he seems to uh make reference to samuel he calls him polly uh he's he does it a couple of times it seems to be his nickname and we've no idea why he does it um now i've alluded slightly to it in there It samuel was never married he didn't have kids um so uh, 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 Timothy seems to have uh, Issues the further you go into his Back history he seems to have a lot of issues With homosexual men he seems to have A dislike for homosexual men And uh, as as mentioned in the, in the thing he mentions about how he would Beat them up and how he would stab them With uh, lit cigarettes Whether Samuel was homosexual We don't know but uh, It seems interesting that he calls him Polly But we don't know why he doesn't have a parrot that was kind of uh one idea that i thought it could be but there doesn't seem to be a reason and no one seems to express why so whether there was uh whether there was something in the past going on between timothy and samuel that's just conjecture there's nothing in there to say that it was happening or we don't know we really don't know so uh yeah um immediately as mentioned in the episode uh a lot of the uh the, the tenants in the house, even though Samuel's room was was messy, um, they all felt that there was something wrong with that they uh Montague Rosen, who was on the the, the first floor uh was uh, terribly upset and said there's something wrong with mr. Bragg uh, but he said that when he looked in the room, the room was a mess. But said uh, the room was never looked anything like this before. The kind of some of the drawers were open and things were moved. It was messy, but it was not as messy as it normally is. Um, What else we got? Uh, As mentioned, Kathleen said Old Samuel has been done in. That was her exact words to the police. Uh, They said there were bruises and they couldn't work out how he'd got his bruises because he'd, he'd he'd been bed bound for about three weeks. Uh, first officer turned up that was PC Horace uh, Sims Uh, police turned up they pretty much went through everything when you look at it it's kind of if you think about it nothing had been stolen old man lying in his bed Uh, bruises which you expect with an old man he'd got a pillow not over his face but to the side of his face everyone agreed he got breathing issues he wasn't particularly strong Uh, there didn't seem to be signs of assault so you can understand why they would say it wasn't a robbery it wasn't a robbery because nothing was nicked except for the pair of keys which no one noticed um but then again why would you why would you if someone came in and broke into my boat and i was found dead would someone i have keys on my belt as well would someone notice whether my keys were there or not i think it's highly unlikely they would probably find the other keys that i have in the room and they go oh well this is his keys but it's not it's not the, the keys i normally use um So, yeah, uh, two of the drawers were open, one wasn't, and that was the one that was locked. He'd got the keys, but we don't know why he couldn't open the box. Uh, He couldn't open the box and he couldn't open the drawer, so we don't know why. He must have panicked and been struggling. Uh let's go down to if you go oh, the, uh, the, there was a prom, a palm print found on a chair in samuel's room at the time uh and they couldn't identify whose it was could could just be a mistake it could have been one of the policeman uh and it wasn't ruled out so we don't know um as mentioned, the body was taken away by J.H. Kenyon, the undertakers of Westbourne Grove, <coughs> um, and was taken to St. Pancras mortuary. Uh, the autopsy was pretty standard. They said he was, as always. They always start with the phrase, "He was well nourished." People always hate that. It's like it, it seems to be tradition that you, if you're a pathologist, you have to open with the statement whether someone was well nourished or not. They said his body was unkempt and his eyes were sunken. He was wearing a soiled grey shirt and long pants. These were kind of his pajamas. Uh, rigor mortis had set in uh, on the skin over his left hand side, the left arm, and the back of his uh, trunks. He had tiny hemorrhages to his eyelids uh, and cyanosis to the fingers. So, rigor mortis had set in. They reckoned he'd been dead uh i think they said about 12 to 16 hours which puts his time of death and around the time that uh timothy would have come back from uh the youth club but uh they're still uncertain about that uh so originally they thought it was asphyxiation by smothering which was consistent because it was he had a it wasn't i've put pillow in the episode but actually it was a bolster but i just didn't want to have to go through the episode explaining what a bolster was a bolster is basically just a slightly longer pillow that normally you would put um if you're a couple you put it between you so you've got a bit of a space or you'd use it as kind of something to balance you up while if you sleep on your side but that's really just what it was uh what else we got let's go down let me try and find those details about uh, timothy timothy um a couple of interesting things in his back history so obviously we mentioned about the theft before uh would so stolen money from previous times he'd stolen money to buy i can't remember if this was a question uh who cares uh to buy fashionable clothes so he could hang out with new pals Uh, and he said that he started to enjoy dances so uh he was use stealing to get money to go off to dances um he seemed to still be doing his paper round of which he was earning a pound a week but then again a pound is 20 shillings 10 of those shillings went to old samuel um 10 for himself although i believe that some of it went to his mum as well um so he probably only had about five shillings which wasn't enough if you're a young lad and you want to have a bit of fun um he was absent from school at March 1964 uh reported missing apparently he had an argument with his father after he threw an electric light bulb from a railway carriage he returned home the next day having spent the night in a loft in a nearby building so after that he was dismissed from his uh grammar school which is a slightly posher school and then he had to go to a secondary modern which is not so posh I went to a secondary modern Now, wrong with that um 14th of June 1964 one month before the murder he ran away from home again this time with two boys he was found at Dover so on the south coast on the 18th of June and was returned home he was playing truant from the grammar school as he was unhappy there he admits on occasions he was frightened of his father Um, 9th of April 1963 so this is around the same time just before he went truant uh, he fell from his bike and sustained a small head injury He was sent to St Mary's Hospital in Paddington and was detained overnight for observation. He was conscious but confused when admitted and diagnosed with an abrasion to the right-hand side of the forehead and right wrist. He had no internal injuries or damage to the skull. He was discharged on the 10th but failed to keep a further appointment at the hospital. Uh, by all accounts, a regular lad who liked playing football, at to wreck with his pals. He goes to record shops uh, and attends meetings of the local sea cadets. Uh, he had no illness as a child and no history of insanity in the family. Um, his mother said that he, um, he'd he been hanging out with kind of older boys, uh, different boys than what he was used to, uh, who had their fashionable hairstyles and bad language. So obviously this is the 60s. You've kind of got the... the the teddy boy era has gone and we're kind of moving into the mods and the rockers phase at this point so um kenneth rogers his mate uh he was the one he he originally confessed to but it doesn't seem to be a confession it seems to be a bit of bragging that's going on and he he said that uh, he got into samuel's room uh what was going through his things and samuel woke him and he woke samuel up by mistake um timothy said to him that he ran out Uh, And he did not think the old man saw him, which was obviously a lie because he later changed that in his confession. Um, A few minutes later, Timothy said to Kenneth Rogers, do you know the old man's dead now? Uh, And that's pretty much all they had on on the uh, on that. But he did say the crafty old man had 50 pounds in his mattress and a post office book with 2000 pounds in it. Now, this was said on the 18th of July. So this was before he gave his confession So so he knew uh he's already admitted that he knew uh of all that money Ah, uh, what else is there uh inquest was opened on the 24th of july at st pancras coroner's court um, and it was adjourned until the 31st of july as is standard um there was a committal hearing at Marylebone east juvenile court in seymour place on the 7th of august 1964 and he was charged with murder in furtherance of a theft now this is kind of key because 1964 um we've still got the death penalty it's it's already on the cards that it's going to be coming off but we're still at that point where where if things if you, if you commit a murder you will be sent to a life in prison but if you commit murder in the furtherance of a theft meaning you're you're stealing something and then you kill someone that is a death sentence um so it's kind of it's kind of important for him at this point because even though he's only 14 years old he could still be executed for this uh so he pleads manslaughter uh Uh, At that point, the jury uh, said they found it difficult to find that a boy of 14 year olds, 14 year old intended to kill or to do grievous bodily harm. Um, At this point, he was committed to Brixton Prison uh, and uh, he was awaiting his trial at the Old Bailey. Um, As mentioned, uh, Dr. P.D. Scott, who we've had before of Maudsley Hospital, uh, assessed him while he was being held at H.M. Romance Centre in Ashford. He said the boy is of superior intelligence. His uh, intelligence quotient, his IQ is 129. I think the the average is 98. Uh, He shows no confusion uh, or thought disorder of any kind. He does not display, he does display a certain callousness towards his victim. He is rather childish in his outlook, although some of his tastes are more sophisticated uh, than would be expected from a 14-year-old boy. Um, He stole to feed his new tastes, such as as mentioned dancing and uh, records Uh, at times he gives the impression of indifference to his situation perhaps trying to conceal the seriousness of his position in general he is polite and cooperative he displays no sympathies which require treatment and his condition does not indicate that he should be dealt with under the mental health act he shows no evidence of mental illness he had regarded the offence largely because of its implications. He had regretted the offence largely because of its implications to himself, rather than because of the sympathy for the victim. And as mentioned earlier on, the only hint of violence is his fantasy in his description of how he would deal with homosexual men in cinemas. He said, "I would slam them or stub them with cigarettes." uh i think that's pretty much it mentioned tried at the uh old bailey the central criminal court uh, <coughs> uh he said that this is what attracted me to the story I, I i originally i can't i can't remember how i found it but it was through a small article originally and i it was um i think i think i went searching for a manslaughter maid of ale. I went searching for it. I found found just an article about him, a fourteen-year-old boy in court, no emotion, no uh, no remorse at all. And I was like, "Oh, I need to know more about that story." I think originally the newspapers had said that he'd murdered his his brother in bed. As always, the press always get things wrong because they can't be asked to check the details. Turned out to be a seventy-seven-year-old neighbor, entirely different. But there you go. That's the that's newspapers for you uh i think that's it yeah i mean he, in court he, he said I, I went into the room to get some money as i'd spent some of my mother's change i was looking in the drawers and when he woke up i panicked and threw the pillow over over his head he he keeps saying he threw it and then he says he held it so um uh, the judge made an order for him to be held in prison for 10 years and said that the Home Secretary might release him on licence long before that period. Uh, As mentioned, he was held at Stamford House Romance Centre, which is currently under investigation for child abuse at the moment, Um, uh, and where he boasted about his escapades having killed a man, and he had to be separated from the other boys. We know no other details about Timothy Cotter after this point. Um, I have searched... Uh, he just seems to have vanished. He's 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 oh, certainly still alive. Because there's no death certificate there. And he wouldn't have been that old. It'd probably be in his. Born 1949. So yeah he'd be uh, mid 70s by now. So uh, yeah. Um, one thing that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, he stole. He said he stole money from Samuel. To pay back the three shillings he owed his mum. But he earns one pound a week. Which is 20 shillings on his paper round so um yeah even even if he's giving back 10 shillings a week to samuel and even if he's giving back five five shillings to his mum to kind of you know pay for food and things like that if he is indeed doing that still has five shillings so why does he need to steal money from old samuel to pay back the three shillings doesn't make sense anyway let's dive into this right quiz questions some of which i may have ballsed up i don't know um what uh, question one? What job did Samuel Bragg's dad do? He was a sawdust dealer. Got to be people sell sawdust. You got to be a sawdust dealer. Um, question two. What did actor Kevin Klein shout on the corner of Randolph Avenue? The line from A Fish Called Wonder is, "Asshole." which every time I go past Randolph Avenue, I always shout, asshole. Uh, question three. What size was Samuel Bragg's room? It's 15 feet square. I went past there the other day. I think it's been converted not in, into flats, but into back into being a big house again. It's very posh. Uh, and there was someone in the front room staring at me because I was filming it. They were like, "Oh, he looks like a scoundrel. He looks like a burglar. Yeah. Uh, question four. Uh, what did... Timothy St- oh, what did Samuel steal every morning from outside Mr Rosen's door it was his newspaper given the fact that uh, he would have gone into the toilet afterwards for 20 minutes and he was a blue a blue and tipping his uh his a uh, bucket of shit and piss down the toilet i seriously wouldn't want to read that newspaper afterwards question five how did kathleen guess that old samuel was seriously ill the toilet was clean must have been the right state question six what did timothy spend the three shillings on he spent it on pinball question seven what was timothy buying when he stole the three shillings off his mum bread and milk Question eight: What's the nearest murder so far to this case? This was uh, the old murder of Hannah Brown, whose uh, torso was found just literally just around the corner when that road uh, Randolph Avenue was being built, uh, but the head was found in East London. We covered that ages ago. <coughs> Question nine: What hospital was Samuel sent to when he was ill in 1962? Uh, same one that. Uh, same one that Timothy was sent to when he injured his head it was St Mary's uh and question 10 uh, St Mary's which is also where uh Dr Spilsbury got his training and question 10 what two jobs do we know that Samuel did we knew we know that he was a laborer and he was a soldier during World War One so there we go folks that's that Oh, I'm gonna rest my voice. My voice is screwed. Sore. Really sore today. Uh <coughs> so I hope you enjoyed that. Uh have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to Murdermile. Well. If you enjoy Murderwell, tell your friends, tell them you like it. Uh share it on social media. That always helps. Always uh, you, gets gets the word out into the ether and people go, oh I like that. I will I will listen to that as well. That would be much appreciated. Anyway, have yourself a good week.